6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. How do you know that? Because in Genesis 22, verse 14, it says, He named the place in the Jehovah Jireh, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. He gave it a prophetic name. He knew he was somehow, I don't know how much detail he knew, but he obviously knew he was acting out prophecy. And it's interesting that Isaac was dead to Abraham from the time the commandment came. Three days in total. And Paul makes that part of the gospel in, in 1 Corinthians 15. How the Christ died according to the scriptures that he was buried. Only Paul emphasizes his burial because of his baptismal thing. And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Where in the scriptures does it say that Christ is going to be resurrected in three days? In several places. Jonah, of course, is one example. And the other one is here, interestingly enough. There's a key principle, by the way, that I also want to bring out here. The Sadducees, I'm changing subjects now, we're going to talk about the New Testament for a minute. The Sadducees did not believe in the physical resurrection from the dead, as did the Pharisees. And they liked to ask tricky questions to make the Pharisees look stupid. And one day the Sadducees tried one of these questions on Jesus. said, a woman was married successively to seven brothers in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? That's all in Matthew 22, right? And Jesus answered that the Sadducees did not understand God's power, and they did not understand the nature of the resurrection. And then to prove the resurrection, Jesus quoted Exodus 3, verse 6, where God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, what's that got to do with anything? How does that statement prove the resurrection? When you're reading Matthew 22, you could stumble on that. How did that one statement, was that enough to prove the resurrection? How to do that? The phrase, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the Old Testament formula for the Abrahamic covenant. In that covenant, God made specific promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they all died without fulfillment of the promises God gave each of them. What does that prove? They're going to have to be resurrected because God keeps his promises. It's interesting to discover how God's commitment to his promises undergird, that foundation permeates the entire Bible. The God of Islam, who they call Allah, delights in that he can do anything. He's capricious. He doesn't delight in making and keeping promises. They're opposites. Because our God is a covenant-keeping God, his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob obligates God to resurrect Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in order to fulfill his promises. You miss that as you're reading Matthew 22. And by the way, David in like manner. David has promises yet to be fulfilled, and that's called the millennium. 
By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. We're moving on here. Isaac blessed the son. He did not want to bless and vice versa. Remember, he, 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 Isaac didn't, he wanted to bless Esau, right? No. But when, he, when it got reversed by trickery, he just saw that by faith, he knew that was, that was what was prophesied, that the blessings would flow, that, that those blessings would come to pass. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, now to Jacob, going one further, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph, but again, in a different order than Joseph thought. And he worshiped, leaning upon the top of the staff. Why is he leaning on top of the staff? Because he's dying, yes, but he also was a cripple. Remember when he wrestled the angel? Like his father Isaac, Jacob also issued prophetic blessings concerning the two sons of Joseph. In fact, that Jacob's dying shows that he knew he would die before his promise would be fulfilled. So he too knew the fulfillment was in the next lifetime. Yet Jacob believed God was able to keep his promises and did not hesitate to give prophetic blessings to the two sons of Joseph. By faith, Joseph now, when he died, now, you know, the, the story of Joseph is incredible. You could think of a lot of things that Joseph did. The one that the writer picks is weird. Listen to this. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. The writer, of all the things he could have picked from this incredible saga of Joseph, he picks things before he dies. He wanted his bones buried in, in, in the promised land. Don't leave me here in Egypt. But see, the point the writer's making, Joseph's mind was on, not on his lifetime, it was what, coming next, see? Joseph knew from his father Jacob that Israel would be in there for 400 years, actually. That's what God promised him. He knew that God intended to bring the Jews back from the land of Canaan. That's where he wanted to be buried. And as he grew older and so forth, he realized the promise would not be fulfilled in his lifetime. But he knew it would be fulfilled. So in his will, the will and testament, he wanted his bones to be carried with him. And by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. Now that's kind of an interesting phrase. A proper child? And they were not afraid of the king's commandments. So they, the word there, by the way, in the Greek, means much more than the English suggests. Proper, the English proper or elegant. It means that she and her husband both recognized that God had a special plan for his son. That's what they inferred. That's why they were willing to stand against the king's commandment. And that word is only used twice. It's here, and in both cases, it's always used of Moses, by the way. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. By the way, he was in Egypt, royal heir, for what, until he was 40. Then he made a decision that he would not, he no longer be identified with the Egyptians, but with his own people. That's one of the things that DeMille did a fairly decent job in the ten, movie The Ten Commandments. They brought that aspect of it out pretty well. If he had retained his royal position, he would have committed a sin of disobedience because a covenantal promise would, have been fulfilled, would not have been fulfilled unless he, read, he left the royal court. So he spent 40 years in Egypt, and he's going to spend 40 years on the backside of the desert married to Yvonne de Carla before coming back and spending then 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Anyway, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the riches and treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of reward. Notice this here. He's a type of the Messiah, of course, who had to bear the same approach 
Psalm 69 makes that point. Isaiah 53 does. But all of them are motivated by what? The recompense of the reward. Motivated by reward. We as Christians fail to focus on our recompense of reward. Boy, we're saved. We put our feet on this. Boy, I'm sure glad I accepted Christ. That takes care of that. No, behavior matters. Your behavior will determine the reward that you will be given at the judgment seat of Christ. We need to understand that. I want you to notice this focus on rewards throughout this entire epistle. They, they desired spiritual treasures rather than physical ones. And faith sometimes requires the rejection of the world's riches. For by, verse 27, For by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And, uh, you know, Moses did not flee Egypt for fear of Pharaoh. He left Egypt because he was rejected by his own people when they said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? He was wanted for murder. That's why he split town. <laughs> he showed his faith publicly later when he came back and kept the Passover, as we'll find out in the next verse here. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. The destroying angels moving through Egypt, and that's why they call it the Passover. He passed over those houses that had the blood on the Lord. And it's interesting, if you were Egyptian and had blood on the house, you were saved. It wasn't a, a genetic thing. If you happened to be a believer or someone had a Jewish friend that was in the house and he put blood on the doorpost, you were passed over. Praise God. If you were Jewish and didn't put blood, yeah, you had it, buddy. Understand the difference. The, the blood is the issue here. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, essaying to do, were drowned. Moses went through all the details and applied the blood and all those things because faith also obeys the details of God's Word. Whether you're looking at Abel or looking at Moses and the Passover, they are following God's instructions. Assaying may throw you at, at just a word meaning attempt. Okay? It's an old English term. We don't use it that way too much today. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith, harlot, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Now understand something here. The Amorites in Jericho had 40 years to plan their strategy. It was clear from the text that they knew what had happened back in Egypt. That was 40 years earlier. The reputation of this strange group of people that God brought out of Egypt was well known in the culture. And, the, and probably with some terror, maybe. Because of pretty strange stories that are going around. She happened to believe the stories. The Amorites ignored them. By faith, Harlot, she partnered not because she, uh, be, she believed the stories and provided for the, uh, the, the guys that were reconnoitering the, the thing. And uh, so the author uses the first act of faith passing through the Red Sea and the last act of faith. Notice he, he picks just two out of the whole numbers experience, nominally 40 years, technically 38, but the point is that period of time he picked the first example, crossing the Red Sea, and the last one, the fall of Jericho, to act as sort of an umbrella covering the entire period of the wilderness wanderings, the whole book of Numbers, virtually. Follow me? He just, okay. And then he goes, what more shall I say? 
For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, and of David also, and Samuel, and of all the prophets. So the writer is conscious of the fact that I'm using up all my time with the front end of this thing, right? What more shall I say? The time would fail me. Well, let's see if it does. Let's see if we can get through this. Okay. The whole point of this chapter is that faith is associated with trials. It's natural for faith to be tested. Your faith will be tested. The point of the epistle of Yaakov, we call it the epistle of James, the New Testament, is the same point. It's natural for faith to be tested. Trials should not nullify faith. Trials should strengthen the faith, for trials bring more faith. And I believe every day God finds another way to ask you a question. Do you trust me? In the little things, the big things, whatever, okay? Then he goes through this chronicle. There's got Gideon. Remember his 300 drove the terror-stricken Midianites into confusion? And that out of 120,000, only 15,000 of that army survived. The, the victory of Gideon is alluded to here. And this, he picks this one because that's well impressed on the minds of his Jewish readers. So we have, in fact, four judges that he's going to knock off here. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. And then he's also got a couple of, David representing kings and Samuel prophets. That's his way of just getting a whole summary here. Of Barak, he was summoned by the prophetess Deborah and, to, and his countrymen to war against the host of Jabin and his 900 chariots under the leadership of Sisera. And of course, they got clobbered. The attack from Mount Tabor and the alluvial plains mired up the 900 chariots, and so they got clobbered, and the, the, that, that's Barak and Sisera and all of that. Song of Deborah celebrates that. Then Samson, colorful guy, by the way, had supernatural strength. Yes, he was in good shape, but he had supernatural strength that was linked to his Nazarite vow. He wreaked havoc on the Philistines, lots of color, colorful pranks, uh, but they're overshadowed somewhat by his lustful lapse with Delilah that resulted in his undoing. But in his final repentance, he brought down the house, literally, killing more Philistines than he did in the rest of his lifetime. So that's Samson, colorful, somewhat inconclusive in some respects. And Jephthah, he's the Gileadite that delivered Israel from the Ammonites and also got into an unfortunate vow regarding his daughter. And he sacrificed his daughter to fulfill a vow. And maybe not literally, but that's another whole story. He suppressed the Ephraimite force in Gilead, and he was a judge of Israel for six years. And then we have David. Now, we could talk a lot about David. He's quite a guy. He was a victorious warrior, very clever general. And as a result, he subdued the Philistines to the west, the Syrians to the north, the Ammonites and Moabites to the east, and the Edomites and Malachites to the south. So he really established the empire that Solomon picks up and then brings to great prosperity. He was a very constructive administrator, David was. Judgment and justice for all people is recorded. He organizes the priesthood in the 24 courses. Very important to understand when you get to Revelation. He was a major poet and songwriter. Quite a guy. Wrote 73 of the Psalms. Almost a little over half of them. His kingdom is the subject of an unconditional covenant. We'll talk more about that in a succeeding session. That kingdom was reconfirmed by Gabriel to Mary in the New Testament. Let's remember that. Most churches overlook that. It was reconfirmed by James in the pivotal council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 where he, James quotes Amos chapter 9, verse 11, reestablishing David's kingdom. And the keys of the kingdom, 
is not explained in, at Caesarea Philippi. It's explained in Isaiah 22, verse 22, and it gets its link into the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, verse 7. Okay, we could, t- we could talk a lot about David, but then Samuel and all the prophets. Samuel is only equaled, by the way, to Moses, very key guy. He ended the period of the judges. He heads the order of the prophets. He, he organized the schools uh, for the prophets. He placed Israel's first king on the throne and his second king on the throne. And uh, so, interesting guy. And then, of course, prophets, we've got some topics. At this point, he shifts gears and just lumps. Who else? The, all these collectively, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in faith turn to flight the armies of the aliens. Anybody experience that personally? Not yet. Okay. Well, it may be coming. Okay. These are in tri- there's three triplets. They're national victories. They subdued kingdoms like Joshua, Judges, and David, for example. They wrought righteousness like David and Samuel. They obtained promises like Gideon, Barak, and David. Another triplet was personal deliverances. They stopped the mouths of lions as did Daniel, Samson, Benaiah, and David. They quenched the power of fire, as did three friends of Daniel, Daniel 3 and all of that. They escaped the edge of the sword, as Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jephthah, and David, to name a few. They had, some of them were personal gifts in a minute. Those that weakness were made strong, like Gideon, Samson, and David, for starters. They waxed mighty in war, as Joshua, Barak, and David. They turned to flight the armies of aliens, as David and Jehoshaphat, just for starters. Then it says, women received their dead raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Women received... Why women? Why does the writer write that? Well, for one good reason, they often were involved with triumphs over death. In both Testaments, old and new, most resurrection miracles were on the behalf of the women. Some examples, the widow of Zarephath, whose son was raised by Elijah, 1 Kings 17. Or the Shunammite women, who... uh, Son was raised by Elisha, his successor, in 2 Kings 4. The widow of Nain in the New Testament, whose son was raised by Jesus himself. And of course, Lazarus is not a woman in this case, but you can, if you want to, it was on behalf of the sense of uh, the brother Martha and Mary. He was also raised by Jesus in John 11. So those are all familiar to you, I'm sure. So women received the death. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. There were people in the Reformation that willingly were burned at the stake for the sake of their conviction to the Word of God rather than the, 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 the medieval church. They, they, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain what? A better resurrection? You mean some resurrections are better than others? You betcha. You betcha. That's something we don't think about very often. Now there are others that God promised a better resurrection because these resurrections were merely restorations back to normal life. Those who were raised from the dead died again later. We talked about that when we were in, in Hebrews 9. 9 There's a point for a man wants to die. But there's a handful of exceptions we talked about. Lazarus and others that died twice. That resurrection is not the resurrection we're talking about. The resurrection we're talking about is one that he talks about First John 3, 2. Beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and so on. There's others, examples. The people God chose not to raise from the dead knew they would receive a better resurrection, an immortal one, as will others who were tortured to the point of death. When they get resurrected, it's going to be an immortal one. 
from which they'll never die again, is the point. Not accepting their deliverance means they did not take the easy way out. Think about it. See, the, the readers of his epistle were about to take what they thought was the easy way out, go back to Judaism, because they're tired of all the persecution of being a Christian. And Paul said, hey, wait a minute. Realize what you're doing. Big mistake. And these could not have renounced their faith such as the three friends of Daniel could, could have done. They were given an option, but they did not seek the easy way out. Remember Genesis 3. He said, King, if our God will choose to save us, and if he doesn't, up yours, O king. That was a, a mistranslation of, of Daniel 3. They chose to die a physical death for the following reason, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Is that our goal, yours and mine? I hope so. The others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. And uh, Jesus, of course, uh, and Jeremiah both um, suffered those things, of bonds and imprisonment. And uh, Jeremiah is associated with the first two, Joseph to the second two, probably in the mind of the writer here. And they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. They were stoned, like Zechariah was. Some were sawn asunder, as we believe Isaiah was. Jerome records that in his uh, uh, recordings, that Manasseh sawed uh, him, uh, Isaiah, with a wooden, in half with a wooden saw. And uh, then we, and, and Uriah is also on the list of mighty men and so forth. Tempted as Joseph, slain with a sword, as like Uriah, and, and sheepskins and goatskins like uh, Elijah and others. Destitute, afflicted, and tormented, that is most of the prophets, of course. Of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And as at Albadiah and a friend of Elijah and others, all of these had similarity, points of similarities with the readers. That's part of the selection that he's, the writer's doing here. They forfeited employment. They were ostracized from the society. They were reduced to poverty, mocked, imprisoned, and so on. All these things are being threatened to his readers. That's why he's calling their attention here. Of course, none of them so far of his readers had given their life yet. They probably will before they're through. It's, it also shows that it's not God's will to save everyone physically. He does not work the same way in every case. There are some people he resurrected from the dead, but there are others he did not resurrect from the dead. There were some that he rescued alive, while there were others that he allowed to be tortured to death. All of these had faith, although the results of the faith varied as God will. And all of these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise God having provided some better thing for us that they, without us, should not be made complete or perfect. That's an interesting thing. The Messianic kingdom promises have not yet been fulfilled, but the promises in both the Old Testament and New Testament have yet to be fulfilled. And we can anticipate the same thing that they did, namely the Messianic kingdom that's yet coming, that they, without us, should not be made complete. He's going to refer to the Old Testament saints as just men made perfect in the next chapter. But the ultimate perfection will come with the Messianic kingdom. And we're going to talk about that in the succeeding sessions. The key verse of the whole chapter is Hebrews 6.12. I'm going to draw back from chapter 6 because I think it summarizes the key thought here that this one provides the evidence for. That ye, you and I, should not be slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Are you inherit, going to inherit the promises? You're saved through Jesus Christ. Praise God. I take that for granted. But are you going to inherit the promises? I don't know if that's true. 
That's going to depend on your faithfulness, your response to the challenges God will put in your path. And some may be rather dramatic. Let's be, let's be ready in advance. Rahab the harlot, despite the 40 years, was ready. Through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Okay, in the next session, I want you to read chapter 12 and also review your notes on the Messianic or Millennial Kingdom because that's going to be coming up in subsequent chapters. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for these heroes of the past. We thank you for their testimony. But above all, Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit illuminating the relevance of their lives to us that we too might inherit the promises you've given us through diligence, patience, and perseverance. Father, we do understand that finishing well is the name of the game. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit and through your Word, you would strengthen, encourage, equip, protect, guide each of us, that we too might yield a good report. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would give us the strength, the focus, the resolve to really be your metakoi, your partakers of Christ. Not just in name only, but in the kind of terms that will please you so that we will hear those precious words. Well done, good and faithful servant as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservations whatsoever. As we commit ourselves in your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. Amen. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.